0: Way before there was swipe up, there was plant up. Well, it wasn't called plant up. Maybe they should have. Mark Zuckerberg was behind it. Maybe they would have called it plant up. But how many things in the world can you think about that over a 100 years ago were more profitable then than now? There's not many. But part of the story of dahlias has to do with that confusion of the highest regard And a lot of people trying to get that one-upmanship or, you know, as we would call it now, get that shine. To really understand dahlias, you have to understand where they come from. And that's one of the topics I always try to just sprinkle out there. Where do the plants come from? Why is that important? Number one. You know where the plant comes from. You sort of know what it wants, right? If it's from Central America, well, heat's not going to be a real problem for it, is it? Because it's a hot part of the world. If it's from northern latitude places like northern Europe, well, heat may not be its favorite thing because that's a cooler part of the world. For dahlias, it all starts in Central America with the Aztecs. And some of the first recorded history we have, at least and when I say recorded history, I'm talking about illustrated elements that involve what looked like a dahlia flower, was as far back as the 1400s. And what we know are two things. They were used for a food source, because remember, another important thing to keep in mind about dahlias, they're in that tuber family, so the same thing as potatoes. And potatoes also originate in South America and Central America. So that's where the dahlia first got its literal roots. It was inedible. But then the flower was used for ceremonies and different things. So we know that it's been out there in that culture for well over the 600 years that we currently stand at. Now, when does it get weird for dahlias? Well, of course, we get Western explorers from Europe. And there was a time, not so much now, where finding plants and the search for botanicals was a huge industry. were a big business. They were only a big business because of at the time, people wanted like pretty flowers, but there was also still the medicinal connection to plants. So there was also the thought of what element could maybe this rare, unusual plant from the newly discovered world create for us that we could profitize off of. So occasionally we want to wax poetic about what the motives of some of this was in the previous parts of history. But at the end of the day, it was still about getting that paper and that's where they were still at then. So as the Spanish start to explore Central America, the first dahlias make it over to Europe and they get to the Royal Botanical Gardens at Madrid. And that is really where the dahlia starts its own precarious journey to get to the place that you and I know it today. Dahlia seeds get to Madrid, and in 1791, the dahlia is named after Andreas Dahl, dahlia, or dahlia. This is one of the great arguments of life when it comes to this flower, right? If you're from some parts of the world, it's called dahlia, and if you're from other parts of the world, it's called dahlia. It really just depends. I mean, if we go by it, it wouldn't really be Andreas Dahl or Andreas Dahl. It's going to be, again, Really, depending upon your accent, where you're going to go, either one's are acceptable by me. One of the big things to remember about this period of time for plant history and why it's important today, because we're going to get there, kids. This is an interesting journey. That the tremendous amount of pressure by these explorers and botanists was to discover something new. So there was always pressure, because remember, people are paying for this, right? You're taking this long voyage across the Atlantic Ocean or across the Pacific or wherever you're going. Somebody's paying for these tickets, and you're being paid, and they want to make sure that you come back with good stuff, not the stuff the guy last week already gave us. Yeah, we saw what he brought back. Give me something new. That was the pressure here as well. So by the early 1800s, we're seeing the dahlias get traded around, different botanical people are exchanging seeds, and now we're starting to see new species named all over the place. The original dahlia species Dahlia pinata was really the great, 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 how many greats can we give here of the current dahlias we know today? But here's what's interesting about that original plant. It was really prone to all kinds of variability. So at another point, they name a dahlia, Dahlia variabilis. What's variabilis? Variable. So it started to create a little bit of confusion in the dahlia world. As people were growing dahlias from seeds, they would see this variability, and sometimes the variability would be mistaken for a new species of dahlia, when it turns out that a lot of times that original one, dahlia pinnata, was just prone to that variability. So do we understand that, right? This is a key thing in the plant world, that sometimes that original species seed can just be prone to huge variability, not necessarily making it an entire new species of plants. Here's where we get on the money train. So by 1828, dahlias are selling for somewhere between $2.50 to $25 per plant. $2.50 in 1828 is equivalent to somewhere between about $150 to $200 today. So think about that for a second. You can buy a bag of dahlia tubers typically retail now for about three tubers in the bag for about $5. Think about that math for a second. Reverse inflation for sure. This is why it's also always important to remember that gardens and plants, most of its early history is in that aristocratic universe because those were the only people that could afford it. So the new plants meant two things. They were going to be pricey and they were a status symbol. Things like Dahlia were like the Mercedes of then in 1828. How did you know if someone was wealthy? You knew they were wealthy because they had the most unique and rare plants from all over the world, which meant they were people that knew about the new worlds, the new undiscovered parts of the universe that people were exploring and bringing these plants from. And you were a part of that journey. So it was a real showy piece of bling in around 1828 to have a dahlia growing in your garden. So by the middle 1800s, it's all over. The dahlias are everywhere. There are tons of varieties being introduced and discovered and named and show dahlias are starting to become a thing. And then... We really are at about the peak of the plant power. If you go back throughout history, there's actually a period called Tulip Madness in the 1800s, and dahlias rode some of that wave as well. Again, being in this super expensive category that was a status symbol of who you were during that period of time. Let me pause on this thought for a second. Occasionally, I will be critical of people on the Instagram that are acting as if what they're doing is really special, unique, or new. Now, I'm not against anyone sharing what they're doing with flowers and plants. In fact, that's what I do so much of. But I do think there's a line here that we have to remember that look at the years we're talking about in this previous few minutes. As far back as the 1400s, Dahlia has been in some form of cultivation. And in fact, going back 300 years, We can see them with their roots extending and there were people and scientists and botanists and explorers and gardeners and everyone involved in getting dahlias to where they are at today. So it's hugely important to keep our eye on that, that there were other people who walked down these paths with plants far before we did and were really, the cliche here, standing on the shoulders of those people. There's a way to share what you're doing and have people get excited about that, but also not losing sight of the history of these plants and the people involved in that history and where it's come from. So that's where my irritation typically comes from, is let's just slow down just a tad, put this in some perspective and context, and say, what I'm doing today, I'm excited about. But the reason I'm able to do what I'm doing is because of all this. That has transpired over literally the last 400 years of cultivation, not to mention the who knows how long of actual natural evolution that has occurred. I mentioned Dahlia panada having all that variability. We have no clue of how long it would have taken that plant and seed to develop that variability and, in fact, that could have been millions of years. So, slow a roll on trying to take all the shine and not giving any of that shine to history. Let's fast forward to 1925. That is when the American Dahlia Society starts. They get classification from the Royal Horticultural Society in the UK, and dahlias in America finally start becoming a thing for the average gardener. Now, at this point, we've gone through World War One. we're a little bit on the doorstep of World War Two, and then after that, dahlias and all plants go to that back seat that I've mentioned so much before about roses and everything, but that's a real changing period in gardening. We go from an aristocratic pursuit in the 1800s to then the cottage gardens of the early 1900s. Then we have these two massive world events, and that shifts perspective, obviously. That gardening maybe becomes looked at as a little bit more labor-intensive than we wanted it to when we're in sort of a modern industrial age of the 1950s. Maybe we don't want to spend that time in the garden anymore, so dahlias go to their corner of the botanical universe, which was typically in the flower show world. We talked about this in the last episode with Paul Zimmerman about roses, but it's really important to remember this. Dahlias were a show flower. That is where they really became popular. It was super impressive to see people who were growing dahlias to get the perfect form. That was it. That was the intention. They were going to go grow this dahlia all year long, then cut that stem off and bring it. And then it was going to be judged for its form in whatever category it was going to be entered into. Now, the downside of this is it was in this small corner of the world. People didn't know dahlias in that kind of way. They weren't thought of as maybe a garden plant. They were thought of as a show flower plant. And then they were thought of as difficult and challenging because the people that were growing them were giving themselves a bit of a chore and trying to make this perfect flower, not just a plant that would survive in your garden. You didn't have to do much to it. So this is where the reputation for dahlias needing staking and being upright and having these perfectly formed blooms came from, and they lost a little bit of their appeal in the average garden. So by this time, we're up to over 20 to 30 species of dahlias. And I mentioned the confusion early on. And here's where that comes back a little bit. So remember how I was talking about all these different explorers and botanists trying to introduce new dahlia species? Well, that continued throughout the 1800s and even into the 1900s. And what it did was leave a little bit of a sketchy family tree for some dahlia varieties. So now the dahlias we have, we don't really know their parentage that well. And why is that a bad thing? Why is that a good thing? Well, there is no good thing. The bad thing. We don't know really the habit of the plant. Is this a dahlia that its original parentage became really big? There are dahlias. There's one called Dahlia imperialis that is almost a tree form and can grow almost to 20 feet. Is that parentage in there? Well, maybe this dahlia does grow to be eight to nine feet tall versus this one that only gets three or four feet. So not knowing a lot of that parentage has cost us a little bit in the long run. So all those people competing for attention and introducing new species dahlia led us down this confusing footing that we're still at now. And then in the flower show world, it was really about just the bloom, not so much the plant habit. So again, dahlias are in a bit of this confusing new ground, trying to work themselves out. What's the plant? What's the flower? What's the best combination of the two, right? It doesn't do you a lot of good if you want this flower, but the plant grows to be eight feet tall and just at the very top, there's just this single bloom. It's like a sunflower. And even though that flower and bloom might be beautiful, in a garden, it's probably not the best thing just to have the one bloom on the top of a huge stalk. Which lands me to today. I grew 6,000 dahlia tubers last year. About 120 different varieties. Now, I can tell you, of those 6,120 varieties, I'm going to bring back maybe 50. That means I'm editing down more than half of the varieties I grew. Why? Well, I'm growing them for cut flowers. What do I want? A great cut flower. I want a plant that behaves well. The stems are really strong. It doesn't flop all over the place. It doesn't do the sunflower thing with one bloom at the top that the entire plant is loaded with blooms. That's what I'm looking for. Here is a great thing, though. Dahlias come in every shape and form you could possibly imagine. Here's the only commonality dahlias have, and here's where we get to the Dahlia Tips for You kind of moment on the podcast. Dahlia is like full sun. And we say full sun, we're talking full sun. Eight hours minimum during the growing season. If they get less, what will they do? They will reach up and try to find the sun. So we get these very weak, elongated plants with very little bloom on them at all. So it's a key thing. Number two, they like rich, easily running soil. That's another important thing. And that gives us a little bit of that clue from their native place of origin in the higher plains of Mexico, where the soil is very gravelly. It's got a loose texture to it, but yet it's really mineral rich. So that's also what dahlias like. They don't like heavy clay soil or rocky soil that with huge boulder-style rocks in it. They like to have a root run. Because when you look at a dahlia's tuber roots, again, thinking about potatoes, they have long roots, but not a lot of fibrous root. meaning those roots want to run and find nutrients. So think of it like you have this potato with this huge tail that runs off the tip of it. That's the shape of the root. And that's what it's trying to do. It's trying to store energy in that potato tuberous root system. But those long roots are searching for nutrient, searching for water. So having heavy soil stops it from doing that. So it's another key element. Full sun and a loose soil that allows those roots to run. One of the key elements also when you buy dahlias is the quality of the tuber you start with. We mentioned earlier on how dahlias originally were grown from seed. It's not the case anymore. There are still people that grow seedlings. but That's just more of like an exploratory thing to see if you can get new varieties. But when you buy dahlias, they're coming in that tuber, that potato. I always use the comparison of, think of the potato you left in the cabinet too long and one of those eyes sprouted out and now suddenly you're growing a potato in your cabinet. Dahlias do the same thing. There's an eye on the tuber, that eye develops, and that's where the plant for the next year comes from. Now here's the problem. If you buy dahlia tubers that are really super dried out, really poorly handled and cared for, well, they're going to take forever to potentially rehydrate in your garden. Or, worst case scenario, they never do and they just die. That's a really important thing, that when you get your dahlias, they're still firm, the tubers, they don't look overly wrinkled, they're not soft at all. These are really important things when you select and buy them. The other important thing is, There's actually an eye on the tuber. Many times I see this mistake. People will just divide the dahlias based upon the potato shapes that they see, and what they're dividing actually has no eye on it at all, and that means it's not going to develop one, and you're not going to get a plant the next year. So it's not like each one of these little division of potato-looking things actually carries an eye. The eyes are actually clustered around the lower part of the stock that's just below the surface. So even though you store one of those tubers, it doesn't necessarily mean there's an actual eye on it to develop a plant for that spring. If you buy dahlias and they do come to you completely dehydrated, but they're not quite dead, what also can happen is you put them in the ground and it just takes them a long time to shoot out new growth. And then the problem is maybe you don't start to see growth out of the ground until 8, 10 weeks after you've planted it. And now that plants a little bit out of its timeline you're not going to see the production from that plant that you would have from a really healthy Dahlia tuber. That is why it is so important that the sources you buy your Dahlia tubers from are doing a good job. And I will make this offer to you. If you buy Dahlia tubers anywhere this year and you receive them and you are not sure of the quality of said Dahlia tuber, shoot me a direct message with a picture of it. I will let you know what I think of it. And then you know what you should do? If you receive a really poor quality Dahlia tuber, Ask for your money back because the thing's not going to grow well. That's the truth. Even if it starts to, by the time it does, you're not getting the same quality out of it. Think of it that way. At the very least, they should give you a big discount, one of the two. But they didn't give you something that was great to begin with, so it's going to be slower to produce the way you want it to. Another underappreciated thing about dahlias is they store a tremendous amount of water in their stocks. In fact, one of the original Aztec phrases for them was water sticks or water canes. And in fact, it's rumored that one of the original tree form of dahlias, which was that dahlia imperialis that I mentioned, that you could actually cut the stalks of it and then transport them, then recut them, and there was enough water that you could actually travel and use it almost as a, uh, think of it as nature's canteen of water. How about that for you, for botanical facts of the day? The dahlias having that much water in them makes them really fans of two things. Micronutrients, really big thing because they store a lot of water in that stock. And the more sweat that they have to do essentially during the heat of the day, and they're not able to keep that water, they will start to not perform as well. So they're definitely a micronutrient-heavy plant, meaning they're not just about the nitrogen, not just about the potash. There's other elements in the plant world that are really important to them. You know, think of your own diet, magnesium, zinc, things like that, that dahlias really need. So when you feed them, it's not just a matter of hitting them with just general generic fertilizers. It's about giving them micronutrients because they're good at storing water some plants aren't. That capacity to store water also makes them very easy and capable of dealing with hot weather. But when you do water them, it is important to water deeply, not surface shallow water, because again, they don't have a lot of fibrous roots to take up that. So deep watering when you do about once a week, and that's it. You don't have to really be crazy with their watering needs as long as you don't go through extensive drought seasons, but once, maybe twice a week, if you had that drought of a deep watering is really what they need because they are going to store a tremendous amount of water in those stocks as well as the nutrient in those tubers. But when you fertilize with micronutrients, and that can be kelp, that can be seaweed emulsions, there's different products out there that you can use. I've talked a lot about them on Instagram of what products you can use. It is important to do that frequently. For me, my rule is I feed the dahlias during the heat of the season. For me, that's usually from July all the way through September. I'm feeding at least once a week. And how am I feeding? I'm feeding micronutrients at the same time I water. So I'm giving them a deep, thorough watering once a week, along with a micronutrient dose. And this is another reason why I always talk about using overhead watering, because a lot of those micronutrients, because a lot of those micronutrients are actually absorbed not only through the roots, but dahlias can also absorb through their foliage. It's also vitally important to fertilize dahlias frequently during heat. Cooler parts of the country and the world where you don't have to worry about heat so much in like June, and it doesn't really kick in till like July, maybe you can get away with it a little bit later. But in warmer parts of the world, where June is a conditionally hot month, along with July, August, and September, these dahlias have a long road of flowering ahead of them. Because here's our goal. We want our dahlias in warmer climates to be up out of the ground and nearly blooming by mid to late June on some varieties. And that means that flower is going to bloom From mid-late June all the way till a frost event. Think about that for a second. Literally tirelessly working for you for almost four months. Shouldn't you pay this thing? Really? Do you want to get investigated by some kind of flower employment agency? No, of course not. Who wants that noise in their life? So give the plant some fertilizer. The fertilizer, again, is micronutrient-based. How do I do it? I'm deep-watering once a week. And when I deep water, I'm using an overhead fertilizer injector that has like a kelp, a liquid emulsion of some kind. And when I water, I'm doing that. The dahlia are going to uptake a little bit through their foliage, mostly through their roots. And they're getting that dosing of micronutrients that they need on a weekly basis so that flower can perform from mid to late June all the way through a frost event. The other key point to keep your dahlias blooming is what? Cut the flowers. Yes, I know. This is a moment. Easy for me, right? I run a flower farm. So for me, cutting flowers is no big deal. But for you, you're in the garden. You see your dahlia at a distance. and You think to yourself, that is the most beautiful flower anyone has ever grown. But I don't want to take it. Won't the plant not like me? Aren't I taking its puppies? Aren't I going to be a bad person? No, you're not going to be any of those things. What you're actually doing is taking the dahlia seeds and now the dahlia is thinking, oh man, I don't know if it says man. Could be non-gender specific at that point. Who knows what a dahlia thinks? Do you know what a dahlia thinks? I don't know what a dahlia thinks, but I do know this. It immediately forces it to want to produce more seeds because that's what the plant is always trying to do. Make copies of itself, continue its genetic progress. That is what it's attempting to do. So when you cut the flower, you are telling it, make more. And that's what it immediately does. So cutting your dahlia flower in that garden, that precious flower that you have grown from a tuber and nurtured and fertilized and watered, means what? You will have more flowers. The other topic I want to pull back a curtain on, little bit that has annoyed me over the course of the last year, and you have to remember my view of this. So I really got into plants in a professional way in like 2008, 2009, and have steadily said so till today, and we're still doing it, almost 10 years later. I've met a lot of people in the plant, horticulture, gardening world, whatever we want to call this, and I have seen again on Instagram some people acting like this is all new and new stuff as if they're doing something that is monumental because they started a flower farm somewhere in the Pacific Northwest four or five years ago. Well, none of that's true. The dahlias that we see in the world primarily are grown over in Holland. And the families over in the Netherlands have been doing this in some cases, as we started at the very beginning, some of this dates back to the 1800s. So these families have been growing things like dahlias and tulips and a lot of the bulb family or tuber family of plants for well over 125 years. And they are still the primary source for dahlias around the world, that they're growing those tubers. And if you ever look at it, it's just magnificent. Their production, the way they've got it down to a science, you can tell they've been doing it for over 100 years because that's how refined their process is. And that's why, one of the reasons, if we look at this in a reflective way, dahlias went from being... $2.50 in 1826 to less than that per plant today because they got so good at it. It's another thing 125 years of practice can do. You almost become a victim of your own success. You get better at it. You make more of them. The supply starts to exceed the demand, and now the price of your own product is lower than it used to be. The irony sometimes of life, right? Deep thoughts, again, on every podcast. When we look at dahlias, it is still important to remember that, that you see people like myself and other people on Instagram with the pretty pictures of the dahlias and doing interesting things. But most of the time, the work and the tireless effort was in a farm in the Netherlands that may have been there for generations. It's a key element to always remember about this again, that that's where the dahlias are coming from. One of the changes in the last 10 or 15 years, and I think moving forward, we're going to see more and more of this. The grower of plants was anonymous for a long time. They didn't have a voice, the farmer. And we see this in modern edible agriculture as well. People didn't know the farmer. You knew maybe the retailer. You know, it was the corner store, and now it's the grocery store, the mega store. Maybe it's Jeff Bezos and him shipping Brussels sprouts to your house. We don't know those farms that those products came from. In the last 20 years, with Buy Local and Supporting Local Farms, that has changed and it's gotten better. Flowers are that same way. We don't know the farm in the Netherlands who's supplying that flower farmer that you see in America who's showing you this picture of Dahlia and taking all the credit for it all the time, do we? No, we don't. And that's a shame. That's going to change, though. As we've seen, the farmer now, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation those people are saying, hey, wait a second. I know how to use social media. I can learn. I can figure this out. I don't think it's so good that we're anonymous anymore. So thankfully, we're seeing that change. And I'm hoping in the next few weeks here to have a couple of friends of mine who do have flower farms over in Europe on the podcast. And we'll talk to them about this exact subject, about the difference of where they were and where they're trying to go moving forward and changing some of the anatomy of how that industry works. So again, another thing to remember, dahlias, they didn't start in that flower farm or in your garden. There is a long history here behind that plant. To close out the podcast, I'm going to give you the five dahlia tips of the day. If you ask me tomorrow, I'll have five other tips for you of the dahlia tips of the day. Number five, Plant your dahlias about five to 10 days before your average last frost. Why? They're going to be in the ground, right? Now, what we want to look for on our forecast is temperatures where the ground isn't freezing anymore if you're in one of those parts of the world. Because the worst thing that could happen is you get a warm day. Maybe your soil gets a little bit warm. But then two days later, it gets super cold again. The dahlias are in the ground. And now suddenly the ground starts to hard freeze and the literal tuber is damaged. But if you're out of that part of the universe, which typically by that average last frost date you should be, then even if the dahlia is in the ground, but at night, let's say it gets to 32, 35, your ground's not going to freeze. So you don't have to worry about that part of it. Dahlias will only be damaged if two things happen. The green foliage that breaks out of the surface is damaged by a temperature where a frost event occurs. That's number one. Or if the dahlia tuber is in the ground and the actual soil around it starts to freeze, meaning the actual soil temperature gets to 32 degrees or less. Those are the two ways dahlias get damaged in the spring. Here's a third way. This is a long first tip. I just noticed this in tip number five. Is really multiple tips. We'll call this sub tips, 5A, 5B, 5C, etc. The other important thing with dahlias is that when you plant them in the spring, it doesn't suddenly start to get wet and cold for a prolonged period. What's cold? 35 to 40 and rainy and wet consistently. This is a bad thing. In particular, if you have heavy soil, This is a bad thing. Wet, cold ground can equal Dahlia tubers getting wet and mushy and rotting. The key is, look at your forecast. Everything will be different. Here in Tennessee, where I'm at, I have two things, right? I have an early warm-up that always happens. It is super rare that my ground here hard freezes over. Our average last frost date is between April 10th and April 15th. Meaning, I can probably plant dahlias around April 1st and get away with that, and it'd be fine. That's where, up in colder climates, you may not be able to get away with that 10, 15-day advantage that I'm getting, hence why I may have dahlias in mid-June blooming, and you may not have dahlias blooming till mid-August. That's how different it is. And as anybody who has ever gardened or farmed or tried to grow anything or trying to dress for the wardrobe and you're trying to layer and it turned out it was hot or cold that year, who knows every year is different. That is such a big tip. Tip number five is pay attention to everything I just said and remember weather changes every year. Tip number four. For gardens, don't grow giants. Yes, I know you want to grow that giant dinner plate dahlia, but unless you just have your heart content on it, they're not always the best garden plants. The better garden plants have lots of blooms, they're smaller plants, and they're heavy flowered throughout the year where that giant dinner plate dahlia may just grow one or two blooms in the entire year, especially if you're in cooler climates. So think about that. Do you want just this plant standing in your garden that you just wait and wait and wait on? Now, maybe if you want that Christmas day kind of moment where there's just that impending the one bloom, the one bloom, the one bloom, that'll be great for you. But if you're expecting lots of flowers and cut flowers throughout the year, the giant dinner plates, not the best selection for you. Tip number three, plant your dahlias deeper than you think. I plant all my tubers four to six inches deep. Why? If that plant has to travel four to six inches up out of the ground, what will that mean? It means I have a base of four to six inches underneath the soil to support what could be this monster of a plant. If I only plant that two or three inches, think about that, right? This is a basic engineering problem. You have two to three inches below the soil. I have four to six. I'm going to have a stronger stem than you do if a wind or rain event shows up. My dahlias will stay more upright than your dahlias. What is the downside to this? That wet, cold, heavy soil in the spring. If you have super heavy soil, what could you do? Do you want to go four to six inches deep? No, this is another tip number three, ABC kind of moment here, people. If you have super heavy soil, Plant it two, three inches deep, and then put a layer of like a composted, a very fine product, not a heavy product, but a fine particled, composty type product, two inches above that. Then you're going to have that same advantage where you're still going to have a base of three to five inches to support that stock. That is such an issue with Dahlia that you don't want this huge plant that grows. And then you have to have 42 stakes and 17 armed guards keeping it upright throughout the year. Tip number two ties into tip number three. Staking dahlias is a thing. Now, the giant dahlias, of course, are going to need more of that than the smaller dahlias. What is the best way to do this? There is not a best way to do this. This is the sad, unfortunate truth in time for a story. I have a friend of mine who I communicate with a lot about dahlias who grows them up in Pennsylvania. He grew a huge amount of dahlias this past year. And he put a good amount of money into a staking system. And when I say a good amount of money, we're talking in the thousands of dollars. And even though he did that, still had problems with a super wet spring, and still it didn't work flawlessly. So in a garden setting, stake dahlias in a way that doesn't stress you out. I mean, go get a big six-foot bamboo pole, go get some twine, just tie it up like you would a tomato, don't worry about it. The other thing that if you keep cutting the plant, cutting those flowers, it's not going to get quite as big, the plant's not going to get quite as heavy, and it's not going to fall over as much. So the more cutting also increases the chance of you not having to see the plant fall over on the ground. But don't stress about staking. You do have to think about it because those big varieties, just the physics of them alone, do lend them to falling over, especially if you get caught in the situation. You get a big bloom standing on a plant, and then it rains, and then all that water weight is in there, then it is going to fall over. So, staking dahlias, lots of techniques on it, but it's definitely something to consider. Tip number one, cut the plant. Yes, I know, you're going to have two moments this year where you're going to go, do this? Do I do this right? Is this the right thing to do? Did I do that right? I don't know if I did that right. I feel like maybe, did I make a mistake? Maybe I should just ask Steve. There's your answer. Just ask me. So we're going to do something called a center pinch on your dahlia. Now, this is going to be a little bit different. Again, region to region and climate to climate. For me, here's what I do. If I cut my dahlia back center pinching, meaning I've got a baby plant that's about 18 inches tall, In the very middle, there'll be this new set of growth. It's about to come up and create a new set of leaves. I would go right below that and cut it. Now, what would that do? That's going to again signal the plant, ah, I got to make more plants. So it's going to start to produce the lateral buds going upright, making new flower shoots. But here's an issue. If I'm in a warm climate like I am, if I do that too early, all I'm going to produce are two giant sets of lateral buds that are going to be really oddly balanced. And again, put the plant in a position where it might actually fall over and become too top heavy. What I do is I wait till we actually get to almost that first flower stem getting ready to be produced. And then I hard cut one set of buds below that. And that's my center pinch. In fact, one of the longest running mail order, yes, there was a thing called mail order before we called it online ordering, Dahlia growers in the world is Swan Island dahlias out in Oregon, and they have an awesome video where literally, as all the flowers are just beginning to bloom up there at that bud stage with these big buds floating in the sky, they actually run their tractor over the whole thing. They cut the tops off of every one of those dahlias. And if you didn't know any better, you'd be like, these people are crazy. What are they up to? Well, again, they've been doing it a long time. And what does that do? Remember, we talked about this. We're cutting the flower. And now the plant's like, I got to make more. I got to make more. I don't know if it sounds like that, but if it did, that would be awesome. If you ever hear that sound in your garden, I may have to question your drinking or pharmaceutical choices of the moment, but it will produce more flowers because you did that. So center pinching dahlias, where first cutting the flower stems, is a huge tip to producing more flowers throughout the growing season. I always love this wrap-up on the podcast here. This is when I tell you all the smart things that we recap. It's sort of like the teacher at the end of the class going, all right, kids, it'd be a good teacher. Do you know some teachers today don't do the recap thing? I always question that. Also, I should mention that this is my friend Jeremy Parsons is the music that I use throughout this. You should definitely check it out. Amazon, Spotify, Jeremy Parsons with a P. The album is The Things I Need to Say. Just great music. Jeremy's a great guy, and you will never meet somebody who has more cat. Puns in your entire life than Jeremy. So he's good at music and awesomely funny, which makes him a great human being. But here's the wrap up of this dahlias. A long history with this plant. So when you plant them, remember that. You're just planting a plant. You're planting hundreds of years of history. And that's not a moment to give you more stress, but more appreciation. Think about what it took to get to that flower that you are growing. Say you're growing Cafe Lait, the ever infamous. It wasn't Café La or Martha Stewart that started it. It started over 500 years ago with the Aztecs recognizing it as an edible food source and that the flowers could be used for ceremonies. And then it went another few hundred years back and it was botanists and explorers selecting new varieties and naming them and fighting with each other to get the naming rights to new species and confusing the lineage of the genetic history of dahlias. But all of that is what led to Café Olé. All of that is what led to me being able to talk about dahlias on Instagram. And all of that led to you growing that dahlia in your company. I walk across
1: cross ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own I try to empathize With all they bear There's something about the sun That brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is Nothing's felt so right So let's Way. I never want to leave this state of my heart. But this night, not for me to decide. This way up here They got no rhyme for the reason why it's wrong But there's still this burning in my head My life in this night, not for me to decide.